Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the second episode of the Talking Sira podcast uh, brought to you by Voice of the Ummah. So in the first episode we spoke about the importance of understanding the Sira. Why, uh, you know, why is it important that the youth, the elderly, everyone, all Muslims should understand uh, the seerah, the life of the Prophet especially in the world we live today where there's many obstacles put in our way in terms of you know the seerah is being watered down or our education system whether it be here in the western world or the Muslim world has uh, you know it's been diluted for example and we gave a lot, lots of reasons why it's really important for us to reflect on the on the, the life of the Prophet and how he went about practically applying and implementing the Islam in the realm of life, whether it be kind of in his personal life, from to society and taking Islam to the rest of the world. Um, so today um, we want to move on slightly and actually talk about the seerah. So um, begin begin this path, this journey of the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So what I, was, what I will focus on today is the essentially the, the, the world before Islam came about. So what was the environment? What was the situation of Arabia and the rest of the world? And why was the world in need of Islam? Why was, you know, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose this time and this place of Arabia to send his final messenger? Right. So this was the difference between the previous messengers that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa as we all know, is Khatam al Nabi. He was the final messenger. So why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose this time and this place uh, for his final risala, his final message? So today we will talk about this and, and give a bit more of a background as to the environment and the world that the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was sent. So before we go into the religious situation of Arabia and you know what was the predominant kind of uh, order and the status quo at the time, uh, let's speak about how the Arabs and how people actually got to Mecca. Why were there people in this desert land and how did they get there? So the Arabs, I don't want to go into too much detail, but the Arabs, the way they came to Mecca, it's subhanAllah, it's uh, uh, quite ironic that we're in the blessed 10 days of Dhul Hijjah, uh, the, best, the best days Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has described it as, uh, we're in these 10 days today and we're in the days of Hajj. And subhanAllah, this is where the story really starts. And many of the scholars of Sirah um, have, you know, start the Sirah, start the kind of their books in this place. And that is the story of Hajar and Ismail السلام, uh, where as we know Ibrahim السلام, um, as ordered by Allah left his wife Hajar and his son Ismail in these lands of Mecca and to nobody really there was no one there it was pure desert land and he was ordered by Allah and Hajar asked uh, Ibrahim that why was he doing this and he said it was from Allah and she accepted this. So to kind of cut a long story short and uh, I know many many of us know this story already so I don't want to really spend too much time on it um, but it is important to understand how the Arabs got there because there's a link here and what it was is Hajar as we know was uh, um, seeking support and help and she was traveling from Safa and Marwa back and forth, back and forth, rushing back and forth with her child because she was wanting that help. He was hungry, uh, they had no water, they had no food, no vegetation, and they wanted to find some sort of support and help. 
um, and they were seeking and imploring Allah to help them. And as we know, uh, what happened is that uh, eventually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bestowed a blessing upon them where the water of Zamzam came from the in, beneath, beneath the feet of um, Ismail alayhi salam. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent this water, um, it was Hajar who kind of collected it and made some sort of um, well, if you want to call it that, some sort of uh, container for the water. So anyway, this was happening in this area of Mecca, in this blessed land of Mecca. And what uh, the, the way the people kind of populated this area was that there was a tribe called Jurham. This tribe had um, essentially been looking for land. They had been... Um, you know, expelled from the previous land and they were looking for a, some stable land that they could come and settle in. And as you know, it was a desert. So in the desert, um, what we will find is that people only settle near water where they can have vegetation, where they can live a life um, that's comfortable and, you know, so they can survive. And what happened is Jurhum, this tribe of Jurhum, they saw um, birds flying over Mecca. So when birds are flying over a certain land in the desert, what it really means is that there's, uh, you know, there's livelihood here, there's water here, there's vegetation in this land. So the tribe of Jurhum approached this land and they found that Hajar and Ismail were there alone. And to cut a long story short again, that they essentially established themselves there and they agreed to stay with Hajar and Ismail, although the, the water of Zamzam remained with Ismail alayhi salam. So Jurhum settled in this land and from Jurhum many tribes emerged, even Ismail al-Islam was married into this tribe, married a woman from this tribe and you know the, the, the descendants of Ismail came from here. And this is how the Arabs got to this land essentially. Um, some more things happened, Jurhum essentially, may, many of the Jurhum were expelled from this land by another tribe from a tribe called Khuza'a and this tribe um, expelled them from this, this land except for one tribe and that tribe was Quraysh. As we know Quraysh were the tribe that remained in this land and they um, eventually uh, gained dominance over this land and they gained dominance and they had um, you know the the power over Zamzam, the power over the, the Kaaba and the Nadwa and all these authorities were in the hands of Quraysh. So this is how the Arabs got to uh, this land uh, and, and how Ismail and his descendants were um, essentially in this land. Um, when Jurhum left though, when they left the house of Kaaba, the Kaaba was built by Ibrahim and, and Ismail uh, during the time as we know, but the well of Zamzam was um, when Jurhum were forced out, they covered Zamzam. They, they basically hid all its signs and marks and they left. And the Quraysh remained here, but they never they, they didn't know where this water had gone. It had been erased from the land. So this is how the Arabs were there, uh, how the Arabs got there. And as time went on, uh, they picked up different religions and um, many different people came. And this kind of brings us on to our next point of what was the religious situation? Why was the uh, you know why did as as we were speaking about why did the world and the Arab Arabs themselves need Islam? And that is because Actually, there were three predominant religions in this land. Uh, one was, and the main one was idolatry, paganism. It was, it was shirk. That that was the dominant religion in the land, and most of the people after Ismail had embraced. And we'll speak about how idolatry started. Then you had your Christians there. You had um, Jewish tribes as well in this land. These were, these were the three predominant religions of this land. So, how did idolatry enter into this land? Because, as we were speaking, Ismail had established Tawheed in this land. 
he had established the Kaaba and he, you know, Tawheed and Islam in the sense of uh, Hanifa, in, in the sense of oneness of Allah, was established in uh, Arabia, especially amongst this tribe. Um, but how did they embrace idolatry? So this links back to the tribe that removed Jurhum from this area. And this tribe was called Khuza'a. From the Khuza'a, there was a leader. His name was Amr ibn Luhay al Khuza'a. He was the leader of Khuza'a, he was one of the main leaders. And what happened is he, um, he went to do some trade and he went to travel all the way to Syria to do this trade. So when he went to do trade in this land, um, he came across some ideas in the, the, in the land of Syria. And the Syria, Syria at the time was run by the Amukites, the, the Amaliq. This people, they were civilized people, they had systems, they had order and they had kind of civilization if you want to call it. So... Um, Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuza'a, he looked up to them. He saw that these were a prospering people. And he saw that one of the practices that they had is that they had idolatry. They had idols. And they would implore their idols and ask their idols for benefit. Uh, they would make dua to their idols, really. So when he saw this, in his head, he thought that this is why they were successful. This is why they had gained so much wealth and so much civilization. So when he saw this, he thought maybe his own people could benefit from idolatry, from having idols that they could use as an intermediary between themselves and Allah. Because they believed in Allah. They believed that there was one God. But they saw this idolatry and they thought that if we have a third party in between that will kind of um, seek support from Allah and help from Allah on our behalf, it will be better. You know, this was shirk, obviously, but they convinced themselves, they justified it to themselves that this was a good thing. So Amr ibn Luhay, he bought uh, uh, an idol back and the idol, as we know, was Hubal. Hubal was the main idol that he placed in the Kaaba. The, the Hubali, they placed it in the Kaaba and the people started following uh, Hubal, praying towards him and asking Hubal for, for things. And eventually, more idols came to this land. And idolatry became widespread in Mecca just after this one action of Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuza'a. So... Rasulullah he said that uh, he narrated afterwards and obviously when uh, years later afterwards when when um, he was he was speaking to the sahaba he narrated that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had said to him that or he had had been shown that Amr ibn Luhay al-Khuza'a was dragging his intestines in the hellfire so when Rasulullah was asked why he told them that it was because this man it was this man who introduced idolatry into the region if it wasn't for this man they would have stayed upon tawhid but it's through this man uh, this influenced you know the person that was a leader of their people he had introduced idolatry and made it widespread in mecca first the first time ever so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given him this punishment and he had shown the messenger that this man was dragging his intestines on on yawm al-qiyamah on you know out of a punishment of what he had done and what he had introduced into the blessed land of Mecca. So, how, you know, one of the things, so before moving on to kind of the other religions, so the idolatry was the main religion. Most people had, they even had like, what do you call it, uh, portable idols. So they had idols that uh, they could take around with them when they went traveling, when they went to other places, they would take a small idol with them. So shirk was 
embedded in their society. And subhanAllah, there's some stories about how um, afterwards the Sahaba, they would narrate some stories. And we know one from Amr. When Amr radiallahu anha, he said that basically, um, it's quite a funny story. He was once seen uh, laughing and crying. And the people asked him, why are you laughing and crying? And he said that, he narrated that the reason I'm laughing is that there was a time before Islam that uh, I we had at my own idol. We had idols and portable idols. We had an idol that I'd usually take with me uh, when I was going to travel. But one time I was traveling, I forgot to bring my idol. So he's traveling, traveling, and he thought, maybe I should create an idol from my own hands. And all idols are created by their own hands, right? So he took his dates and he created his own idol. Like he created a, a version of his idol with his dates. And he, subhanAllah, he... Um, started worshipping his, his date-made idol, um, and that was that. And eventually, on his travels, he became hungry. And when he became hungry, he got so hungry that he ate his idol. He actually physically ate his idol that was made out of dates. So he's just narrating that how, you know, how backwards was he back then before Islam, and how he had been honoured with Islam, that he was in such a situation where he'd made his idol with his own hands, worshipped this idol, and even ate his idol when he became hungry, showing the powerlessness of these idols and, and how that shirk was really embedded in these societies, but meant nothing. And it was Islam that honoured the Arabs, and it was Islam that gave them the truth. And he was laughing because, because of this, that where had Allah you know, shown him and brought him towards the truth of Islam? So this was a situation with Omar. He had created his own idol with his dates, and he had ate, eaten it, and... Um, he just shows the powerlessness of these idols that they created with their own hands. And he's kind of laughing and saying that where had Allah had brought him from the darkness of idolatry to the truth and justice of Islam. So again, this just highlights the fact that idolatry was widespread even amongst the Sahaba at the time before Islam. And another Sahaba spoke about how they would look for the best stones. And when they found a better stone, they would throw away the previous stone and replace it with this better, bigger stone, and they would worship it. Just really showing uh, the decadence and the the basic idiocy of, of, of what they were following beforehand. And I talk about the kind of, it sounds really stupid and silly today, but the fact is that many people still follow this. Many people you'll find in India and many, many religions that they still have this shirk and idolatry where they create the idol from their own hands. They make it. They produce en masse many different idols. You, you see it with uh, many different religions. I don't need to name them. You know what they are. And they will make these and they offer food to these idols and they will do everything for these idols, respect them and everything, even though they've created it with their own hands. But just because they're really kind of backwards and they haven't got the truth, they will follow this kind of really backwards behavior, essentially. So... One thing that we, you know, by by the time, um, so by the time uh, the Messenger of had come to Mecca, there was, or when when he was born in Mecca, there were about three hundred and sixty idols in the Kaaba itself, and really showing the fact that idolatry had spread so much that it was surrounding all the blessed lands, um, and the world and even Arabia and Mecca was in need of Islam. It it was so in the depth of darkness that it needed Islam, it needed some sort of truth and justice. And that is why the Messenger was sent. And that is why Allah chose this people, the people that were blessed with Tawheed at one point, to send another Risala, another Messenger, to confirm the messages of the past. And that is one of the reasons why he was sent. So, I just want to reflect a little bit on why, what can we learn from 
this episode in history where it was once Tawheed by Ismail on, on the path of Haq, on truth. How did shirk come in this land? How did idolatry start? And we can reflect on it in the sense that can we take lessons today? So how did Ahmad ibn Luhay manage to introduce idolatry? One person, one man. And we can, I've broken it down to four, four reasons really. And the first reason is that he was a man that uh, had a, a certain level of influence. right? He wasn't any, nobody. This man, he was a leader of the Khuzat. He Anything he did, people followed. He had that authority and influence, right? So whenever he did something, it became like a sunnah, if you want to call it. It became his teachings and people would follow what he, whatever he did. So when he bought this idol from Mecca, not only did they kind of follow him and accept it, they started to copy him. They started to create their own idols. They started to, um, you know, find idols that were smaller so they can travel with them. Idols that were bigger. You have like Allah and Uzza and all of these separate idols. They followed him. They saw him as a person of influence, someone that they could look up to, someone that they thought that he was on the right path. And the the thing that we can learn today is that we have many people like this today, right? So we have people that have the same level of influence, whether they be certain kind of scholars, if you want to call it, that have all the qualifications. They may have studied in Al-Azhar. They have all these qualifications that and accolades that have been given to them that people really follow. And I would have to say that maybe a lot of people blindly follow. So they will see that this person has got all of these kind of list of list of accolades and qualifications. So he must be right. Whatever he's saying is right. Even if that thing that they are saying is purely against Islam. It has no basis in Islam. But because this person said it, it must be true. I'm not saying everyone follows this, but many, many in the Muslim world, even here today, we will follow this. because we've Not, not because of kind of, I don't want to kind of make it sound as though it's, uh, it's uh, on purpose or out of spite or hate or because they're evil. Not, not, not at all. But actually they've been blinded by it. They, 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 they are so loyal to these people um, that they're blinded by anything and everything they say that even if they were to say that walk into the hellfire, they will follow. Because they, they haven't got this kind of thinking where they have to question and check whether this statement of this person has a basis in Islam. So to give you an example, when certain uh, speakers and famous speakers speak about democracy being compatible with Islam, Riba being compatible with Islam. They may not say it as direct as this, but they will give reasons, give fatawa, and eventually the people will accept that, oh, it's okay to get a mortgage. It's okay to partake in a system that is not Islamic. Partake in a system that has given legislation to man above Allah. Because they're given, you know, it's not it's shrouded with Islamic uh, terminology and given uh, the fatwa, they accept it and blindly follow. And it's not very different from this person of Amr ibn al-Khuza'a. The people maybe had good intentions. It, it, essentially, it's thinking that these things are not Allah themselves. They're just intermediaries. But eventually what happens is that one inch the devil gets, the one inch that shaitan is able to make over the people, then slowly, slowly, shaitan you know, overcomes the people and has power over the people because it starts off something very small, like they say, an inch towards evil is that door. You've opened, you've put a wedge in that door and that door becomes very easy to open. So this is one of the things that uh, we can reflect on and relate to and we need to really be 
mindful of because there is a danger today that this happens because there are many people put out there in front of us that have the very same characteristics they have this influence they have this uh, authority over people so this is one of the reasons that i think um, that how shirk came into the land and how we can reflect on it and, and learn from it from from our times today one of the other reasons i'd really talk about is that it's because the people maybe had that ignorance it's linked to the first reason really that you know because ismail had was here 1000 years ago and the teachings of ibrahim and ismail was years and years ago that eventually as the generations passed the understanding of tawhid the understanding of islam at the time had slowly slowly started to dwindle they had become ignorant and they had started to follow people as opposed to following islam and because of this you know all of these years and generations of islam uh, not being taught in the right way or generations learning a different side of Islam, this ignorance allowed something to happen. Imagine if Ismail was there. Would such a thing happen? No, no chance. Ismail would not allow shirk to come into this land. But because he was not there and the people had not held on to this tawheed, that it was allowed to break through. And very similar can be said of today, that when Muhammad was here, when we had Muhammad it was very, not easy, but in the sense that we had that protection. We had that protection from what was right and what was wrong. But when years and years have passed since the time of Muhammad we held on to Islam. Don't get me wrong, we still have Muslims today, we are still Muslim. But slowly, when we're getting more ignorant and we're not learning our religion the way it should be learnt and taught to us, that we become ignorant and we start to kind of blindly follow anyone and everyone um, who has some sort of qualification. And because of this, then the door opens again to this ignorance and alien ideas coming into Islam. Ideas that have never had a basis in Islam start to become accepted as part of Islam. And we saw this happen in history. And one of the reasons that Islam started to weaken, and even today that we don't really have Islam being implemented as, as it should be, and we have the suffering and the oppression of the people, and this is the reason that we had become ignorant of Islam. And that's why it's very important today that to become closer to Islam, to get closer to Allah, we should really be learning our religion, picking up the books, picking up the seerah. And inshallah, this, this talking seerah podcast can give us more motivation and you know, give us a reason to learn more about the deen so that we can not be ignorant. So that when alien ideas come into Islam, we're able to challenge them. With authority, with confidence, we can challenge them. And it is very important because there's a campaign. It's deliberate. There's very uh, thought-out campaigns to target Islam, target certain aspects of Islam that uh, cause a threat to the status quo. And that is why we really need to hold on to those aspects of Islam, learn about it, speak about it, give da'wah to others about it, so that we are not... Um, we, know, we don't fall into the same tra- traps of what happened to the people of Mecca who were once upon Tawheed. So again, this is another lesson from this and something we can reflect upon. The third reason, I would say, and another very pertinent reason that we can reflect upon today and uh, make comparisons is the authority of Mecca. The authority of Mecca back then was massive in the sense that it was the religious central authority that whatever Mecca did, whatever was happening in the heart of that religious authority because of the Kaaba, and whatever was happening there, the surrounding people of the Arabian Peninsula would follow. So idolatry started in Mecca. It started there. But idolatry started to spread across to Ataif, to Yemen, to all the surrounding lands of Mecca. Why was that? It was because 
people would come as we have today as we have today literally today people around the world would go to do the pilgrimage the hajj to mecca so when they came to mecca and they saw that the central authority the central religious authority had accepted idolatry and they had accepted shirk and they had accepted inter- intermediaries between allah they thought that if the religious authority has allowed this then we should also follow this if they the ones that have the you know have been given the blessing of this sacred land of mecca are doing this then that means that we can do this we can follow this and how can we com- we can make a clear comparison with that today that mecca saudi arabia al saud the regime that controls mecca claiming to be the custodians of the two holy mosques of mecca and medina the mosque of the haram and the uh, masjid al nabawi they claim to be the custodians and what are they doing today they are introducing kufr into these lands they're introducing western values whether it be music concerts whether it be um, you know freedom for women and when i say freedom for women i don't mean the islamic rights of women that they deserve and allah has set upon us and we know what they are but western ideas of freedom western values of of women's rights as as they call it um, they're introducing all of this into the land challenging the mahram laws that we have and that is established upon islam the social system of islam has established these laws but what we find today is that al saud the regime of al saud they are questioning this they are bringing about laws to uh, replace these these laws because they are corrupt they were never the authority that the muslims had put there it was the british themselves that had introduced al saud into the region and there's much we can speak about this today we actually had a talking din podcast on this topic so just to plug if you have if you want to know more about this vision 2030 that saud are introducing in this land then then please watch this uh, this podcast the last podcast that we had on this subject but the comparison that i'm making that is that also they were the religious authority now in in comparison to how how um, mecca was back then and the people see this and they have more kind of a thinking that if they are doing something like this then maybe it is allowed but my lesson and my kind of advice to the muslims out there is don't view the regime of saudi arabia to be the central authority yes the land is blessed mecca is blessed no doubt you know we know the blessings of this land medina is blessed we know that this is the city of rasulullah alayhi salam but the regimes that are controlling these lands are not those to be kind of followed and we should not view them as the central authority that make these rulings that we can follow So that's another key lessons that we can take from uh, the seerah and and from what was happening before Islam was being established in the uh, in this land and and how idolatry had spread and how even Mecca back then was seen as a central authority but inshallah I pray that we will learn from this and we can not take you know Al Saud as being the same kind of central authority as we had back then so what so this was idolatry this these were the kind of three or four reasons um i'm not sure whether how many reasons i i spoke about but three or four reasons why how how i believe that idolatry really came into the sun how it was allowed that one man this one action allowed idolatry and shirk to enter a land of tawhid and i think it's very important that we take these lessons on but also let's think about the other religious situation you know religious backgrounds of that land uh, we also had judaism we had uh, many tribes of the jews that were in this land uh, who had come to this land ironically 
to look for their Messiah. They had uh, certain um, things in their scriptures telling them that their next Messiah or the Messiah would be coming to this land, to this land of Medina and Mecca. So they had come and settled there for that reason. Ironically, they didn't accept. En masse, they rejected the Messenger وسلم, due to their pride, due to their the, the kibr that they had, this arrogance that they had that why didn't the messenger come from us? Why did they come from the Arabs? And they, as we know, they rejected the messenger So this was another tribe that was in this land and we will speak a bit more about what they did there and some of the troubles they caused for the Muslims in, in later sessions inshallah. The other um, religion that was there was Christianity. So Christianity came mainly through Yemen. So in Yemen, the king had embraced Christianity and many of his people had embraced Christianity along with him. So although there were some pure Christians and those Christians that were not corrupted and they had the, the true message of Tawheed, en masse we, had found, we find that many corrupt ideas started to creep in. So the, the idea of Trinity started to creep in. The other ideas that were not from the true message of Isa had crept in. Another reason why that world and that region was in need of Islam. And, and, and the world at large, the Romans had already set, um, you know, they, they had embraced Trinity. That the, the religion of Christianity had been corrupted. And that was the kind of superpower at the time. And they used the religion of Christianity to gain power. They, they were pagans to start with, but they used the religion, uh, the, this kind of corrupted version of Christianity, uh, to, to spread. And we know that what all the atrocities that they committed in the name of Christianity. So this was the, the, the other kind of uh, religions in Arabia and around the world. Um, and in terms of this question we're trying to answer of why the world was in need of Islam um, at the time, there were many ills that were taking place in society. So you would have... The Arabs themselves, they were in the midst of warfare. Every little thing, every trivial matter, they were going to war for. So the, the tribes would continuously be in battle. Many would die. Many would come back and try and take revenge. And they were const constantly in tit-for-tat kind of warfare. And even the Romans and the Persians, who were the superpowers at the time, they viewed the Arabs as backward people, You know, people that were not civilized, people that were illiterate always kind of fighting and in warfare and subhanallah they would go to war for the most trivial of matters subhanallah like for example uh, one of the tribes the camel of one of the tribes he went to um, kind of graze in a land and accidentally they grazed in another part another tribe's land and because of this uh, this tribe went to war for this camel subhanallah some a camel that has no control or power over is actually just doing to fulfill his own needs uh, they went to war for this and even another example is where and they they had a race between horses and one of the tribes cheated. They went to war for this. So these are just trivial matters that they were kind of in the depths of darkness and warfare. And, and again, they were in need of this guidance. They were in need of Islam. And as we know, one of the other things that they were really uh, backwards about the time is that they used to objectify women. They used to view women as inferior. They used to kind of not really accept um, women as uh, a sort of they essentially objectify the women as we have find today and they wouldn't uh, give any rights to the women or they would bury their daughters alive as we know um, so the way they treated the women was very, very bad and very um, kind of unsympathetic um, as we know that Omar even narrated where he buried his own daughter alive and they had no empathy or sympathy when they were doing this because in their mind they thought this was right and this was kind of 
okay to them because it had become acceptable that women and daughters were, you know, a burden. And any time they were born, they would want to bury them alive as well. You know, they wouldn't even care about the cries of, of the daughters. They would just bury them alive. So this was the darkness that they were living in. And we also know how Aisha um, narrates to us that, uh, may Allah be pleased with her, narrates to us that there were four types of relationships uh, in the time before Islam. And one of them was the pure relationship, was, which was marriage. But then the three other predominant relationships was one was around kind of prostitution where a woman would you know sell herself as and her body to other men. They'd have a flag on her, her door to show that she was kind of open for business, if you want to call it that. Uh, the other one was where the woman would allow many men to kind of sleep with her. And the final one was around how, subhanAllah is crazy, but at the time it was acceptable that a man would allow a noble man to sleep with his own wife just so that he could have noble children. And Aisha was telling us that this was a commonplace before Islam. And this is the corruption that they were living in. And it was only Islam that honoured them with purity and gave them the truth and justice of Islam. And again, let's make that comparison with today. That uh, do we not find this today with women? Are they not objectified, treated as mere objects? Are they, do they not sell their bodies? Prostitution, whether it be for money or do it, they do it out of their own will. Sleep with many, several, several different men, and do we not find that men do the same thing? They, you know, they sleep with many different women outside of wedlock, and they have the audacity to kind of question Islam. Subhanallah, you have the same thing. You know, I don't want to really go into the details. Really, it's disgusting. But I'm trying to just reflect upon the fact that this happened. So this is another reason that we can um, reflect and, and compare with today. So another another thing that. Uh, we find is that uh, in Islam, uh, when it comes to the, uh, the the rights and wrongs, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set for us. So, so when a society has no Islam, when it has no um, morals and no kind of goodness, they only follow their whims and desires. Allah, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us, that man will only seek to fulfill his whims and desires unless he has that truth and guidance. And this is what the world that Islam was coming to. How how do we um, how do we um, know what is right and wrong? We need the one who has created us to tell us what is right and wrong. Show us that guidance. Show us that truth. And because of this today, we have you know we don't have this today in the sense that mo- most Western societies and the dominant societies today that follow the West, um, you have this in the sense that uh, LGBT has come become widespread and become commonplace and promoted. And this is because purely to seek their own desires. Riba. This was another thing that was really commonplace in Arabia at the time, where riba was being spread and, and it was it was commonplace and people would, you know, make money off money. And we have this today, probably even worse. And the whole system is kind of trying to get away from riba itself is becomes a very difficult task. And this is what we had then and we have today. So again, it's a lesson to take that Islam they needed Islam then. They really did. They were in the depths of darkness. But even today, yes, we have Muslims. Yes, we have Islam in the sense that we know what Islam is. We have the book of Allah. We have the sunnah. But we don't have Islam being implemented and practiced as it should be. And we find the same things that are repeating themselves that happen in the history of Islam in the sense of before Islam, repeating themselves today. Because essentially, we have abandoned Islam. The true form of Islam we've abandoned. And we need to again look back 
at these lessons and what we can take from it, look back to the seerah and understand how it can be practiced and implemented in the way it should be. So subhanAllah, uh, to conclude the, the session and conclude this uh, episode, um, I just want to really speak about you know what the lessons we've taken from today. So the Arabia and the rest of the world was in dire need of Islam. They needed a message. They needed the truth to come to them and guidance to come to them. They were in the depths of shirk. They, in, in the wider world of the Roman Empire, they had distorted the religion of Christianity and used it for their own gain. They had things like gladiators fighting each other. They had, um, you know, basically using the escapism of the time was to fill out massive stadiums full of people so that they could watch, um, you know, gladiators fight to the death. And we have this today in the sense of take it for sports events. People are fed this kind of, um, you know, all these escape, escape, escapism, if you want to call it that, these, these distractions from thinking about their true purpose. You know, whether it be kind of watching many programs on Netflix, whether it be um, sports, whether it be whatever it may be, lots of distractions that we have that take us away from the true uh, Islam and truth that we need to be really following. And it's not just Muslims, even non-Muslims. Yes, we need Islam. We have the suffering of our people, the oppression of our people, and we need to be support. You know, Islam will only give us that liberation from this persecution that we have today. But even the non-Muslims, Think about the innocent children that are being taught some of the decadent things that we have in society today. They themselves are in need of Islam. Mankind is in need of Islam today, in the true form, in the sense of how it should be established. And the other thing that I forgot to mention is that when, um, when, when the idolatry was spread in, into Mecca, one of the other things that happened is that the you know as the Amr ibn Luhay al Khuzair, this man, he viewed the Syrians and the Romans with this kind of inferiority complex. He had an inferiority complex. He saw them as superior. So when he saw this, that they'd given all this wealth and given all this um, power to this land through having idols there, they he himself viewed this as a you know a benefit that if we take idols, that we could ourselves have this wealth and power, but. They didn't. They they got into more darkness and and you know the the depths of kufr and and and, and tawhid was demolished through this. And even today, do we not have the same issue in the sense that we view those who have wealth, those who have power, as being superior to us? So when it take America for example, do we not view America as having the power? Many people have look back to Islam as Islam being a, a 7th century religion. Yes, we can pray, we can do salah, we can do hajj, but when it comes to the practical application of Islam in politics, in life's affairs, we view it as backwards, as it being from 7th century. And we view America and the Western world as being you know, the ones that have progressed, the ones that have the moral uprightness. But the fact and the reality is that this is a nation who has caused the most bloodshed in the history of history since since history was written and they're the nation that have used the atomic bomb they're the nation that have caused the most destruction in the world only recently on saturday we found that the mass shooting that took place in america subhanallah and where does mass shooting take place the most it's america this nation that claimed to be the moral actors the moral ones that are upright they're the nation themselves that have the most mass shootings i think in 2009 they had 240 odd shootings compared to 
of the other nation which has had maybe a few here and there but on mass not much so bringing it to an end i pray that you've benefited from from this 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 podcast and and we can take lessons from this and we can understand that the world the messenger was coming to why allah had chosen this land this time for islam to be sent uh, to mankind uh, i pray that you've benefited please share this podcast um, tell others about it if you haven't watched episode one you can watch it on youtube and other podcast uh, platforms um, again make dua that uh, uh, you've benefited and anything good that i've said is from Allah and anything bad or incorrect I've said is from myself and I seek refuge uh, from Allah in it. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لولكم ولسائر المسلمين فاستغفروه إنه هو الغفور الرحيم. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته.